All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have Cole Arthur Riley. She's the author of the new book, This Here Flesh, and uh, some of you might follow her on Instagram. The account is Black Liturgies. It's an account that uh, I got introduced to not too long ago, and so when uh, her publicist said she got a book coming out, I said, yeah, I'm interested, because I am... Um, curious what she has to say and uh, this book was uh, great she's a great storyteller and at the podcast we try to help you navigate faith in the modern world and i believe this conversation with cole will do just that so thanks for checking it out uh we've got uh, a lot of exciting stuff coming up for you father greg boyle is on the docket we've got stanley Hauerwas for the first time coming on the podcast uh down the road so a couple things that i'm very excited about and i'm very excited that you get to hear more from cole right now so Thanks for checking it out. Enjoy. The pleasure of being joined by Cole Arthur Riley. Welcome to the show, Cole. Thanks for having me. Outstanding. Uh, You are in, like, is it the Pittsburgh area? I'm from Pittsburgh originally. Mm -hmm. I now live in upstate New York, so Ithaca. Mm -hmm. Okay, somehow I missed that. So, like, in the book, you actually have a name for where you live? Wisewood, is that right? Yes, yes. The... The property that we live on is, we named it Wisewood. It was previously named Marble Orchards, and we decided to, to rename it. Yeah. I, I like that. Like, I like the idea of naming your property. Um, I feel like I need to, like, get my daughters on board with naming the house that we live in. It just seems very regal, like statesman. Like, you're, I feel like you should be like the duchess of something if you have the name for where you live. <laughs> does it does i mean it felt weird at first we would put our house in gps and you know marble orchards would show up and we're like this just doesn't feel right mm-hmm. and it's no longer orchards you know we have some apple trees but obviously we're not like a functional orchard so um but it's nice it's i, I think it's been really beautiful it can seem kind of pretentious so we don't broadcast it but then i went and put it in a book so yeah you did. here we are but there's something and really then people beautiful. like me are starting with it you know so like my listeners just think you're pretentious just from the get go. <laughs> right. so we're gonna undo that but like that's where we're starting <laughs> yeah thank you now i have a lot i have a lot of work to do for the next 45 minutes yeah but i i feel like you got this though so um raised in pittsburgh family mm-hmm. uh new york which which of the boroughs um bronx manhattan yeah okay mm-hmm. and then go to pittsburgh that's where you uh were raised you go to yes. did you go to school at pet pit i that did right? yep i went okay. to pit mm-hmm. and uh you studied lit lit what is it writing um and, okay. and literature they they separate them out at pit um hmm. so writing and lit yes You've done your research. This is exciting. uh, Here's the thing about a podcast is that like you have a book and it's not like I have to like go sleuth through the internet to find these things. (laughs) You you, like literally gave me the answers right in front of me. So, you know, yeah. So you write a book about it. And, but here's the thing, like most of us don't uh, like didn't know you from the book. The book is entitled this year flesh because honestly it hasn't come out when we're talking right now, but people probably are more familiar with your Instagram handle Mm -hmm. and uh, Black Liturgies, am I saying yes. that right? Yep. Okay. Uh, so you started that a while ago, and it's just kind of just taken off? Yeah, it has. found a lot of traction. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Um, I think, you know, timing was, was certainly everything. I started it at the end of June of 2020. So this was in the wake of the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, and we had... 
the resurfacing of the murders of Breonna Taylor and Elijah McLean. And I think a lot of black people, um, a lot of people like me were looking for a spiritual space that kind of spoke to black grief, black anger, you know, um, in a way that was, was meaningful. And I, I think that so many people around that time were also being kind of, um, uniquely traumatized by, um, very conservative white Christian spaces, which, um, seemed antagonistic toward blackness or, um, at the very least, not sympathetic to the black plight. And so you had all of these people, I think, leaving these white dominated spaces, um, but still craving a spirituality. And we were also were all driven online because of the pandemic. So yeah. in hindsight, you know, at the time I thought this is going to be like a dozen of us, right? Like connecting over this project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think because of how, you know, that everything was working in, in the world. And at that time, it kind of has grown to much more yeah. than a dozen people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's a few more than that, but there are also like some people who would not be uh, considered people who've experienced black anger or the plight of being a black person who find them like, Hey, I, I want to understand what's going on here. Uh, and in some ways, like I kind of feel like a voyeur, like on the outside, like, Hey, I, I don't feel like excluded, but I also know like this isn't, like my space. Um, but unfortunately it seems that there is what you described is there are a lot of white evangelical communities that are hostile or not even sympathetic. And I think we can imagine like the hostile part, but when you think of what is not sympathetic to the experience of black people in America, what are some like descriptions? Like what are some things that make us go, well, yeah, this doesn't feel like you're even sympathetic to what we're going through. Yeah. I, great question. I think a lot of, um, neutrality, a lot of, um, in the midst of black grief, you know, let's see, let's try and let's try to see the other side. Um, which I think, you know, ordinarily is a fine, like a fine practice, but in the immediacy of someone's grief, it's not the best thing (laughs) to say, you know, it's not how we would approach. I would hope not, um, someone grieving the death of their mother. I hope we wouldn't say, you know, see the positive side, but I think many, white, not all, many white Christians were so uncomfortable, maybe so guilt-ridden that they wanted to rush past the pain. And so it's kind of like a, a there, there, but let's look forward because Jesus is on the throne as opposed to actually engaging in pain, um, making spaces of lament and, uh, uh, holy anger. Um, yeah. And so it's things like that. It doesn't immediately strike you as offensive, but to be on the other side of it, it's um, emotionally constricting, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's a good phrase, emotionally constricting. Like, uh, the other phrases are good as well. I'm saying they're bad. But, like, emotionally constricting is, like, if you don't create space um, for, like, anger, which you talked about. I think it was... Uh, who said uh, to be uh, to be a black man in America is to be constantly angry? Or Yeah, it it's James Baldwin. Baldwin paraphrase. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't get, yeah, definitely didn't get that quote right. But I think that's uh, something that I don't understand. Like, I, I don't live in this perpetual state of anger because of, like, the way I experience America and the way I experience the world. And one of the things that I've learned is that there are people who, um, even in religious communities that I'm connected to, where because of constricting behaviors by white people who aren't wouldn't identify as racist or would not say that they're like malicious towards other people, but they 
they constrict a space so that other people can't express, specifically people of color, can't express their experience going through one of these national tragedies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a lot of ways, like we're, and I say this like as a church leader, as a pastor, like we don't create space. And so all of a sudden spaces like what you've created on Instagram become like a, a safe space for people to process what unfortunately we're not allowing people to do in churches. Does that, does that sound fair? Yeah, it does. And, you know, I don't feel the need to make it expand past blackness, but I will say it, it has. And so the reason I think um, so many white people have followed, (laughs) which I didn't expect, is because even they have felt the kind of um, the results of having to navigate these like emotionally constricted spaces and in in the midst of their own pain or, you know, Mm -hmm. assault or manipulation or whatever um they haven't been given this kind of spiritual space where every emotion is honored in its own way and even interrogated you know um in its own way and so i've i'm always surprised when you know a white person will dm me and be like well let me tell you this story and um i mean it's a delicate line because i don't want to you know center whiteness by any stretch of the imagination but i think there's something really beautiful to see this kind of um, mutuality, this kind of solidarity taking place in the mm. in the liturgies. <laughs> hmm. I would kind of like, and maybe I'd hate it too, but I'd kind of like to to read through the DMs that come your way on that uh, Instagram <laughs> account. I can imagine there's a plethora of opinions expressed to you. Yes, um, yeah. I I I have to say I'm not sure why this is. I feel like I'm being divinely protected or something. I haven't like had to read many really antagonistic DMs, you know, unless a post really blows up past my like usual audience, which is great. But um, yeah, it always comes with you know, the trolls and the people who just want to dare you apart. But I thankfully, I'm really glad I implemented this and would recommend this for other black creators. I have white friends who I allow on my account in moments like that, and they'll just go through and sift comments. They'll do the reporting and the restricting and the blocking. So I don't even have to encounter that. And I think that's just a really special kind of community that people probably wouldn't know I do. Huh. That's a that's a pretty interesting practice that you just have someone go through and deals with trolls. That's probably good for your soul. Like that's probably some good uh, self care that you're doing. Exactly. You, but like you described, like it's a community. It's not just about you. Uh, you've got a line in the book about uh, cults are about an individual, and the opposite of like a cult is solidarity, where we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. Now I'm I'm reading that after yesterday. My oldest daughter is 13. And our church uh, has been doing the Lord's Prayer for a while in our liturgy. And after church, we're at lunch, and my 13-year-old daughter's like, Dad, when we do the Lord's Prayer, like everyone's kind of mumbling along with you, you sound like a cult leader, and like the church is a cult. And I'm like, okay, thanks thanks for that. I appreciate it. So, um, but the idea that like solidarity is like the antithesis of what a single-focused cult is, is kind of like a beautiful picture of maybe what you're trying to accomplish online. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely. And I resonate with your 13 year old daughter and felt similarly <laughs> the first like Episcopal church service I attended. I was like, what is happening? And I, I think, you know, th- that's a really credible critique in a world where, you know, we're very suspicious of tradition and authority. And I think 
rightfully so, many young people are kind of, you know, raising their eyebrows at kind of these unified, um, the unified voice. It can be terrifying. Um, but I think liturgy in a really beautiful way reclaims that because it, it, the purpose is it belongs to all of us. You know, I kind of like that you don't always know who writes the liturgies. And I like that you have to stay in a sentence, even if it doesn't feel like it immediately applies to you or makes sense to Mm -hmm. you. I think it's a form of written and spoken solidarity to, to, and and I hope that's what white people experience as well when they read a line and they, they might think this doesn't resonate at all the beauty of liturgy i think is saying but i'm committed to staying in these words with you and that's why i think it's such a beautiful practice of solidarity even though Mm -hmm. it can be frightening to witness because you're not always sure you know like who's what's behind these words so i love that your 13 year old daughter is interrogating that already yeah no she's she's definitely onto something and she's a lot smarter than me already but even the the very like word liturgy like literally means like the work of the people like Mm -hmm. like even in its etymology it's trying to articulate that this is not an individual's action and part of the beauty of of liturgy and especially like uh like um pre-written prayers uh like the lord's prayer is that even when you aren't in those words yourself, as you're describing, like you say, I'm a part of this community, and so I'm going to join with everyone else. And Lord's Prayer, like I'm going to join in with Jesus and say these words and hope that maybe they're not the way I feel right now, but I hope that my soul will eventually align with this community, and this mm-hmm. too will be the declaration of kind of where my soul is. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, one of the things that was interesting to me is, uh, so you grew up in... Um, home in which religion wasn't maybe a big part of it um Mm -hmm. and you are freshman at Pitt, and you meet this like the way i'm like imagine the story in my head like this bubbly like young life leader kind of person who's trying to like accept get you to accept jesus into your heart and that's kind of like the uh like introduction to christianity to you is that am i understanding that right Yeah, I mean, for the most part, that was, college was like the serious introduction. I had spent a very kind of brief stint in um, a white Baptist church that my great aunt Kathy was attending. And Mm -hmm. my family started to attend with her after her husband died just for a little bit. So that was my very first encounter with, um, you know, like an Orthodox Christian faith. And I was really scared then and kind of just shied away from it. And in college is when I revisited it and um, yeah, sweet girl, very bubbly, bright eyed, but she was speaking a different language to me. Yeah. And the, in the same way that my 13 year old daughter's calling me out on the like cult leader thing, um, the way you described her telling you, don't you want Jesus to live in your heart? And your response is no, like I want Jesus all around. Like I don't want him just like, in here, like that's a great little critique of. Wait a minute, what is the mentality that we're describing about who God is, who Jesus is? What does it mean for Jesus to be Emmanuel, God with us? Mm-hmm. And I like I thought that was a like a wow, like that's an outsider perspective of something that we've all missed in just a language that we've like accepted as our own. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, language is such a big part of it, and I w- I was hoping to show some of those kind of childlike, but I think again, credible responses to Christian language sometimes where, I mean, I say this to my friends now who were raised in the church. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Or they'll, they'll reference some 
Bible story and you know they've spent their whole life hearing about it every year this one and I, I'm still like wait is this one of the Sunday school things that everyone knows or is this is this new is this interesting if I tell you this or like is this old news but sometimes mm-hmm. the language is just yeah it's just terrifying if you really put yourself <laughs> you know nothing but the blood yeah. of Jesus it's 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 gruesome and kind of creepy as an outsider yeah, like being- yeah, being washed in the blood of Jesus, like that—that that seems a little bit weird. Like I didn't uh, didn't realize church service is going to look like uh, Showtime's Dexter. Like that's <laughs> just a little different thing than most of us expect in a religious community. Um, so, uh, your you have a stint, which I like the uh, prison language that you use for your time with the Baptist <laughs> church. You had a brief stint upstate um, with the Baptist, but then. Um, in college, you have this experience. And so, what I found unique is, like, I knew that's kind of your story as, you know, your publicist was telling me about the book and kind of, like, where you came from and all that. Um, and so, I'm surprised because in even in the introduction of the book, you talk about this is less of a revelation and more of a remembrance. And so, mm-hmm. that would, to me, be like, okay, that's someone who's, like, a part of you know, Bible thumpers who like me who grew up going to church, you know, three times a week. But but for you, you find this as remembrance and obviously the the visuals you use in the book tie back to this idea, even though that wasn't something that was maybe your childhood growing up. So help me understand like this mm-hmm. is more remembrance and revelation. Yeah, sure. So I I used to say, you know, I used to say I wasn't raised in a spiritual home. Um and I've started to correct myself and say I wasn't raised in an overtly religious home. But the more I um, work out my relationship with God, the more I work out my relationship with story, I'm, I'm realizing that my house did possess a kind of spirituality um, in what I, I, I think is stories. Myth was really big in the Arthur household, which is strange, like just making up these like legends of especially around children. Um, and so you'll see a lot of that I, in the book. And I, I kind of need one of those. Like, help me understand, like, one of these l- legends. Like, I'm there's very a legend curious. that my, my older sister has unicorn blood. She has this little oh. pockmark on her, on her forehead um, that almost looks like she might have, I don't think it's from chicken pox, but it's almost like a chicken pox scar or something like that. Mm-hmm. And she asked about it one day, and my uncle Dave crafted this, like, wild story about how she has partial unicorn blood and it was like Mm -hmm. a year later and my dad said something about the mark on her head and she was like well that's where my unicorn horn was gonna be (laughs) that's like what did you tell my daughter and but but like we still tell that story like we still like um that's partially tongue-in-cheek but to like the next generation it's like this funny um yeah. but special myth that's passed along to help people make sense of themselves. I mean, he was helping her make sense of her face in this mythological kind of like, and beautiful way. Um, yeah. So there are a lot of things like that, that, you know, as I, you know, obviously I've chosen a, a Christian tradition um, right now, but as I experience that, as I, as I read the Bible and encounter these stories, I'm still experiencing my my own story and there's fragments of my my life and my grandma's life that I can kind of connect to my story with God if that mm-hmm. makes sense even if she which she would have connected her experiences to God just maybe not in the same way as me but um I think that's the power of the divine you know that that even 
I mean, I've said this before, but you know, like some callings only come to you in memory. And so in looking back, you actually are able to see these, you know, sacred moments um, that I think my family was experiencing with the divine, even if they weren't articulating it in that way. Um, hmm. Interesting. Uh, uh, first of all, I still just love the unicorn blood thing. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. I tell some of my coworkers that I have Wolverine blood which uh, which makes me immune to COVID. Um, so they, it's very similar concept. Um, I'm not anti-vax. That was a joke. Um, though I really do say that to my, like, I just want to be clear, like what I'm saying. Um, it's not like some Joe Rogan thing. Um, but uh, uh, one of the things that you, you say in the, I'm sorry, I just got lost with the unicorn Wolverine blood there. The, you, you had this great observation in the book about liberation, that liberation begins with the belief that you deserve to be liberated mm-hmm. and that liberation is connected to us understanding like that, that like this is not just something that um, like happened accidentally, but this is something that we're worth. How do you, how do you think our worth helps us understand like our, our liberation and our like value? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think I'm paraphrasing Angela Davis here, but, but she says, you know, people can become so used to their chains that they, lose imagination for any other condition of living, you know, you just become so acquainted to them. And I think it requires, I really liberations, I think requires an imagination for a different way, a different condition. How can you have that imagination? How, why would you even want to cultivate that imagination if you thought you deserved, or this is, this is all there is for you. This is all that was promised for you. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, I do think that, as much as we can try to like shout at people, you know, get free, get free, you know, freedom, you really do have to believe that there's something in you that's, um, that's worth preserving, that there's something about you that's worth saving, that's worth experiencing something different. And if you don't, you're just, um, it's just going to be kind of fake. You know, I think we see this all the time on these, like, choosing my words carefully here and like these social media self-help realms that are really reducing healing to this just kind of like pick yourself up by the bootstraps you know take a bubble bath or whatever there's something wrong with Mm -hmm. bubble baths but like that's not it that's not how we're gonna get free you need to know (laughs) that like you deserve rest and like that's the starting place not just screaming Mm -hmm. into the void rest 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 anti-capitalism rest it's like how do you train someone to see their own face and get them to understand that you know they've done enough let me ask the follow-up question then how how would you go about training someone if if i have a listener right now who's going i I don't feel like i deserve to be liberated i don't feel like i deserve rest like how, how would you help them connect the dots on that yeah i think the answer would probably be different depending on who i was speaking to So I'll give the answer as if I was speaking to one of your black listeners, I would say, you know, if you don't believe that, look backward and, and, and look at all that black people have, have given and done and experienced, um, that frankly, if, if all you did was be born and then keep breathing, like you would have done enough. And I think, Mm -hmm. I, I guess expanding it, you know, past, just like ancestral slavery trauma. Um, 
I think expanding it. If you're a Christian, which I know many of your listeners are, if you if you want to take it back to the garden, I think you easily can. That Adam and Eve were declared good before they did anything at all. That Christ was declared. Um, God said, I'm pleased with you before he did much of anything at all in his baptism. Yeah. And so there's this, um, yeah, there's this inherent dignity in inherent proclamation of, of, um, of worthiness, I think all throughout scripture in different ways. And then all throughout our histories in, in different ways. Hmm. So what if you had, uh, one of your white readers who, like feel solidarity with your like Instagram account. And then they see this book and obviously they find connection there. Like, would you say that differently to a white listener? Obviously you're not going to talk about like ancestral, uh, you know, consequences of, of enslaver enslavement and all that, but would you say mm-hmm. anything uniquely to their experience? Yeah. I would say on the other end, you know, the result of the global story of, of enslavement um, and violence and abduction you know, to process that in a, a white body as well, I think leads to, I, I believe, a tremendous amount of self-hatred. I, I personally believe that's why a lot of people, a lot of white people respond to black grief the way they do. I think it's born of guilt and born of self-hatred. And I think a lot of white activism, frankly, a lot of white progressive activism is born of self-hatred. And so I think I'd pr- approach it from that way to say, you know, this has left its mark on you, you know, injustice, it, it doesn't leave anyone in touch, untouched. Oppression doesn't leave anyone untouched. It harms the oppressor in the same way that it harms the oppressed, if not more, if it, it might obscure the humanity of the oppressor far more than it obscures the humanity of the oppressed. And so I think white people are going to have to contend with that. You know, you want to believe in your dignity, you're going to have to contend with your story and um, the work that your body does in the world the work that maybe your great, great, great grandfathers and mothers did or didn't do and, um, and still be able to see your own face and not turn away from it. Like it's a, I think that's a hard task. I think there's, yeah, I can't say enough about the role of self-hatred in, um, yeah. In the oppressor. You say you can't say enough. Why do you, why do you think that is? Like, why do you, I can't say, say. I think I can't say enough because I just don't think people are talking about it enough. You know, I think Mm. it's really easy to, to just demonize the oppressor always. Um, listeners, I don't think all white, like, I don't mean to paint it and I'm speaking hyperbolic (laughs) so that you understand. Um, but yeah, I think it's really easy to, to demonize the oppressor in any situation. And, you know, I think they're, obviously white supremacy contains some kind of evil um, in it, but I'm much more interested in reclaiming someone's dignity and telling that, you know, when we talk about colonization, for example, and I added this into the book at the very last second, my whole life I've thought of colonization as this like, um, this egotistical conquering, you know, like we want more, our ego is just so inflated. And I, the more I actually think about it and try to put myself in that position, I think when I'm most egotistical, I actually feel very content. I feel like every, I own it. Like I just feel very happy in my own space. I think deeply unhappy people, deeply insecure people have to go to someone else's space and take their land. How, how much do you hate your own land that you're, you're 
traveling the world trying to conquer someone else's. So I, I think it's, you know, it's sinister and it runs back very far. This, um, the result of self-hatred or a feeling of insufficiency leading to these oppressive actions. And so I tell white people, like, I'm not going to get free by your bondage. Like, that's not going to help me. That's not going to work for me. Um, that's your own guilt. That's a way to help your own guilt. It's not a way to help me. So if mm-hmm. you want me to be free, you need to help get yourself free. You need to see your own face and be able to say that it contains dignity and that you're loved and that you're enough. Yeah, That sounded very self-helpy at the end, but... <laughs> well, I mean... As a Christian, I feel like love is kind of central to what we do. And right. it seems like Christian, like justice, Christian love, like is for all people. And mm-hmm. to, to love your enemy means that somehow because of the story of Jesus, that enemies are deserving of love just as much as your friends and family. And so mm-hmm. I think that's the type of like justice and restoration that the, the, the Christian aligns himself to or is a part of that God is doing is that. God isn't just for one or the other, but for both sides, and both sides need redemption. It looks different, it feels different, of course, but yeah, I mean, I think God's for all people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a story that, like, we find ourselves rooted in as Christians. And, like, in the book, one of the things that you you talk about is the importance of needing to be rooted in something. And, Mm -hmm. like, we joked at the beginning about your uh, fancy orchard that you live on with Mm -hmm. your your butler and your maids and, like, all the people who... (laughs) who appease every desire that you have since you are fancy like that, but you named it. Part of that was because you wanted to have a sense of like connection to, to where you were. And mm-hmm. like, there is a need to be rooted for, for all of us. How, how do you think we feel that sense of like longing to be rooted? Hmm. I mean, uh, well, I guess I'll, I'll start by saying, I think the reason we avoid it is because we're trying to locate ourselves in some way. I think especially young people, I mean, I could say this about myself. I've always said it. I love to travel. It's like, you don't meet a young person who doesn't like to travel. And more and more, it's, it's, it's increasingly rare to meet young people who don't want to take a gap year abroad or something like that, which by the way, I'm all for, um, but to do so in search of oneself, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical of, I think you can certainly experience new parts of your selfhood when you're kind of disoriented in a new space. But I, 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 I'm very interested in doing the work of figuring out how did the place you were formed, um, create a selfhood that you're just interested in rejecting. Like you just don't want that to be you, you know? And so you're off in Mm -hmm. search of some alternate self that you feel like you can't grab hold of, or how did your, you know, your home or your, original place to press your true self and you feel like the only way you can be liberated into selfhood is if you leave because you can't actually experience who you are you know at home or at the church you were a part of which Mm -hmm. is very valid but I, i think it leads to us asking the question of you know what does it mean to just be have these nomadic existences that seem very beautiful and literary right but actually it's it's quite lonely and um yeah, I guess I'll just leave that. It's quite lonely and it comes at a cost. And so to just travel without addressing the initial reason why you're afraid to be rooted somewhere, I think is harmful. Yeah, I think in the religious setting, like the traditional re- religious setting, like the idea of for, for many, especially um, like my generation and, and younger is to like to leave the 
the denomination, the tradition that you were raised in, because you want to eschew some sort of like um, like flaws that are very obvious to you that maybe generations before were oblivious to, or they were just knowingly just complicit with them. And so you want to do something new and start something fresh. But what happens is like we all carry with us the stories that we, we were brought up in. And so mm-hmm. the idea of like going somewhere else as though we can have a fresh start is, is, uh, I don't like. I don't want to say sophomoric, but it's like it's it's maybe well intentioned, but it's un, like it can't be realized because we all are the accumulation of where we come from. And mm-hmm. like, part of the thing that I appreciate about like staying in the tradition I grew up in, or maybe coming back, is that like this was always like my family. These are always the people that have the same stories as me. And like you know, you can change your last name and you can you know get new friends, but the thing about old friends is you can't replace them. And the thing about having traditions like th- this is part of like my story. And sometimes we have this a historical view of. Of, of ourselves as though like we're independent from the communities that raised us and the stories that were told to us that that we miss something that's so much deeper that that we're all invited into even yes. if it's more, like more complicated do, mm-hmm. do you think part of the reason like that we want to have like this nomad existence is because we like we just want to cut the strings and feel like we can get like a fresh start and not have to carry some of the baggage with us yeah i mean i think it's it's hard work to really have to excavate every you know everyone no one had a perfect childhood, you know, we paint these pictures yeah. as if some people did some, but everyone carries some kind of pain, um, from their home. And, uh, and, and so I think it's really difficult to actually face that. Um, but actually, um, Mako Fujimura, who I think you had on your, your podcast, yeah. but I heard him say once, um, I'm paraphrasing. He said, we, we have a lot of narratives of waywardness and leaving and so few of homecoming, so few of homecoming. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, there's something maybe about this trajectory that I'm seeing in a lot of my friends. I'm 31 and, um, you go through this phase where you, you know, hate the place you're from, you demonize it, you're embarrassed of it or any of these things. And then when you reach, I don't know, about my age, I'm starting to look back with all of this um, complicated nostalgia, knowing like there was so much, you know, there was pain, but there was so much beauty. And when I go back to Pittsburgh and I go through the tunnels and the, the city lines there and you just feel alive. And I'm like, yes, this, this contains me. I walk the boulevard again and I'm like, yes, this contains me. And in some sense, the people who know me outside of, you know, Pittsburgh, outside of Brookline will never know, like, fully me, I think, (laughs) until they encounter me in Brookline and, like, see me walk the streets. And um, so I I say all that to say, I think we just need more. It's not to, you know, alienate anyone, alienate anyone who wants to experience the world and all of that. But how many stories do you have of homecoming, of tender and complicated homecoming? How many are, of those are you telling around the dinner table? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I I think you're right. Like, there's a stage of life thing to it. And uh, I'm going to pretend like you and I are the same stage of life. Both of us are under 45. Both of us are under 41. And right. so it's kind of like that same same age, like us people uh, who are young. Um, but I recently put, put together a Spotify playlist, and it's all like home songs. Like it's all songs just about like coming home. And I don't know if it's, I just feel like it's like I'm getting old or something, but I like every time I'm on an airplane and it's like my return flight, like I always listen to that playlist and I look at pictures of my kids and stuff, but there's something like more than just like seeing my kids, but it's like, I'm seeing myself as I remember it. Like I'm from somewhere. I'm part of something that's bigger than myself. I'm not like some Island that is independent of, 
uh, like of the community that 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 raised me, and that's mm-hmm. that's all of us. We're, we're connected to this. We need to live into this. And I think there's a level of like cynicism when all you see is like the the worst of like your story and the worst of where you came from and all you want to do is pick it apart. But I think the other side of that is like, you can start to like see the presence of goodness in all things. And Mm -hmm. one of the things I I love that you made the observation in the book about the idea of awe is like, awe is this like exercise. You have to work at it. And I like how you said it's the same muscle as hope. Mm. Can you connect the dots on that? Like how is developing all like the same muscle as hope? Sure. I think I, I would say, I experience both awe and hope as a form of imagination, as a practice in imagination. You know, I, I thought this about hope recently that you're you're trying to muster a, like some kind of imagination for a different reality, um, and similar with awe because I think we're so bombarded by the you know, the terrors of the world, especially in, in 2022, we have access to so much pain um, that to be a person of awe, to to practice awe, you really have to kind of, I don't want to say overcome that, but you, it, it's, it has to be a force. It, it requires a strength, a certain fortitude to be able to, to see beauty when so much of what is attractive in in online and media in conversation is the pain. So you need something to kind of push against that force. And I think when you see, when you see the terrors and the traumas of this world, it's very difficult to, um, to want to believe that like, you know, the sky is beautiful or like that this soap bubble is beautiful in my kitchen. Like who has time to see the beauty in you know, an oxidized pan when, you know, the world is crying. And so I think it it takes a real strength and a real presence to, to pay attention and to have an imagination to say, actually, is there, is there beauty here? Does this, you know, does this contain something else besides terror and pain? Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it does require some of that because there are moments that like it's easy to see the beauty. Uh, speaking of Mako, uh, when he was on the uh, podcast, like his backdrop was like him in a studio, and he like like had this like these beautiful pictures. But I was like, dude, this is absolutely amazing. And I think like one of the like my coolest moment online is back when I was on the Twitter. I tweeted something like, "Hey, his room." Did you ever see the Twitter account Room Raiders? where they would rate people's backdrops like it was like a uh like during covid thing and uh anyway if you don't follow it whatever i'm just saying like i'm I'm important i'm cool (laughs) i had them actually rate his room they gave him a 10 out of 10 and they gave me an 8 out of 10 for my backdrop so i'm still a little bit bitter about the 8 out of 10 but i get it like it's not perfect but um (laughs) when you look at something like mako's art like obviously that's that's moving for anyone and everyone like you see what he's created and what the, the muse has created through him like it's overwhelming but to move past just like those spectacular moments, but to see in everything is like, that's the real work. And you talk mm-hmm. about, you have this line in the book about, um, about mystery. It swells the womb of every moment. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that like every moment is like, is pregnant with something beautiful in it. And to have this imagination, to have this, this all that you, you cultivate like a, a muscle that you're, you're building, it changes the way you see like the, the little moments of every, every day right here mm-hmm. and right now. Yeah. I, 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 re- I really believe that. And I'm glad you picked that line because I almost cut that line because I thought it was just too poetic and just kind of like inaccessible. But at the, the last edit, I put that back in there because I thought, you know what? It's true. I believe that. I believe that every moment I live is like at once, you know, ordinary and, 
you know, majestic, it's mundane, but it's, you know, sacred. And I, I hope people understand that. And, and the more we can see our like day to day lives like that, I just think that the more we'll be able to hope, you know, I think that's what keeps people from despair is is being people who are capable of seeing beauty in these mundane moments. Yeah. And it it also, I think, empowers us to withstand like the ugly moments to know Mm -hmm. that like, these aren't the only ones. These, this isn't the end of it. Um, you you tell like a really heartbreaking story about your grandma and, uh, uh, sexual assault. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you use that word or not, but I mean, that's how I understood it. Mm -hmm. Um, and like, it'd be very easy moment because like the heartbreaking part of the story is obviously that it happened. The secondary part is that like, she has a friend show up and the friend doesn't help her and, uh, just kind of walks away. And it'd be easy to be like, man, this guy's awful, but my friends are even as bad because they don't do anything. They don't help me at all. And it's easy to like have moments like that, that just create cynicism. You become jaded to relationships and to people, Mm -hmm. but how, how do we not let those things overcome? Is it like by developing this imagination that, that there's beauty in everything? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I'm thinking of, of the color purple and, you know, people know the color, color purple Alice Walker as this really traumatic and just kind of desperate story. Um, but like the title comes from this, you know, really tender moment where a character says, I think it pisses God off when you walk past the color purple and you, you know, you don't acknowledge it, or I I can't remember the exact word, or you don't like acknowledge its beauty essentially. Yeah. 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 And so it's just so interesting. It's like this really kind of terrifying grim tale but at the heart of it is um a character saying you know actually god wants you to pay attention to the beauty we're not all pain you know like i I won't be reduced to all pain i won't be reduced to all grief so i'm gonna pay attention you know and that's um so i'm thinking of of that book and just i'm also continuing to think of Mako, who I don't mean this to be just like a Mako fan girl podcast, fan but yeah, I yeah, mean, it's it just, it's just true. He's amazing. But I, I've heard him talk about the process of painting and this kind of traumatic process of pulverizing the minerals um, yeah, of yeah, his yeah. paints. Um, and I've, I, I, I mean, that has always stuck with me when I think about him, this kind of, um, traumatic experience, this pulverization, this kind of painful in thing that you have to endure. And then he's creating from it. And I think, you know, um, so many artists have done that in so many different ways. And, and that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do with this here flesh. That's what I want yeah. to do with black liturgies is to create that kind of art. Yeah. I, I feel like the best gift that we have to give the world comes out of our pain. And the human heart and conflict, I think that's where like all story comes from. I think that's good art. I think, you know, Hemingway talked about, you know, it's easy to write a book, just sit down uh, at, a, at, a, at your typewriter and open up a vein and let your like bleed out onto it. Like, is oh. that's like, like, right. Is that of our pain? Is our hurt? Like the unresolved tension that we carry. I think those are the places that we can give our gift to the world. I mean, story of, you know, friend who was in the, um, uh, uh, the like foster care uh, system in America and like had a really traumatic experience. And so like this person decides I'm going to become an adult who is a foster parent and I'm going to change the lives of, you know, however many kids I get to uh, place with. And it's like out of her own, like pain becomes like the beauty that she gives to the world. I feel like that's like the best gift that we have. And it's not, it's not fun. It's not easy. It's not comfortable. It's not just a, Hey, I can k- 
put two words together that sound pretty, but it's, mm-hmm. I, I can give my whole soul to this. Mm-hmm. Well said. Um, and so I feel like you're, like you're doing that in your book. Obviously, like you're putting your, like, your like heart and soul into this. And like, as we're getting close to book release time, do you have any like uh, vulnerability hangover? Like, man, I put a lot of like my humanity in here. I didn't like just tell the pretty parts, but like, do you, are you having any of that? Like, Oh man, maybe I shouldn't have put that in there. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, so actually my grandma who, well, you'll know this, that the, the book is really grounded in the stories of my grandma and my father the most. And and my grandma passed away while we were editing the book. Mm -hmm. Um, and she was a writer and she was just so excited to be able to see my words in print. Um, and so there's so much grief tied to the project now for me that it's, um, it's difficult not to have a vulnerability hangover because the stakes in some ways feel higher. When I read, a moment that I've relayed, I think, man, did I, did I honor that? Did I really honor that moment? Um, because now I'm trying to honor her, her death and my grief, you know, all at once. So in some ways I've, um, increased expectation for myself and I've really had to, yeah, just be kind and patient (laughs) and, um, Mm. and understanding that, you know, the, the book now is, kind of more for me and to let it be this expression of grief as well. Hmm. But that leaves you just undone. I'm just, <laughs> she just it tires you out for sure. Every time I encounter the page, I'm encountering her again, you know? Yeah. I mean, she's a, I don't want to say just like a character, but like she is a main character in the story that you're telling. And mm-hmm. I mean, what, yeah, that's, mm, that's sad. I'm sorry she didn't get to see it. Uh, like the final <laughs> final version of it did she get to see like uh like one of the galleys or something no uh, it was before the galleys were released but i read her the first paragraph and that's the paragraph oh. i'm proudest of so whenever i get really sad i'm like well at least she heard that first line um that first paragraph so yeah Man. uh my mom passed away maybe two months before my second book came out and mm-hmm. My mom, she set up for uh, my book release party to, uh, for the first book, which had come out like two years before, 18 months before. And she had like a big, obnoxious, like Mr. T necklace that had like a picture of me in like a little frame. It was absolutely so embarrassing. Um, but when my second book came out, it was just like, oh, this is like, this is something that I really love about my mom that I'm missing, like her being a part of like this experience because. Mm-hmm. Um, like that was one of those moments where she just shined as a mom and like her, her pride and her love just like, there's a big hole. And mm-hmm. so I hate that, uh, you know, you're experiencing that with your grandma and, uh, I know she'd be really proud of this book, uh, Thank just you. by the way that you tell such beautiful stories, but, um, anyway, Hey, thanks for the time. Um, I appreciate you talking with me and congrats on the new book and yeah, thank you. Right? Thanks. I'm, I'm glad to have been on the podcast. Glad to, to know you a little bit better, but it's been a good time. Mm-hmm.